Hello everyone and welcome to a very special episode of the Jams and Tea Record Club where each week myself, usually Jake and sometimes a guest, talk about a particular record that we're celebrating from really any point in history but often we have more and more recently been talking about albums that have been celebrating particular moments or anniversaries or things that feel particularly timely to look back on and this week is particularly true because i'm joined by uh infrequent but memorable guest on the show zach uh of the first watch podcast where zach and and cole talk about film reliably uh, all the time go and check that out there'll be links to that below and we're going to be talking about a very important and special record in i guess modern alternative music history i suppose celebrating a momentous anniversary around the time this video will be going out uh, an album that was sort of very important to us around the time that it's come out and has really stuck around and left a pretty strong impact as one of the most unique and idiosyncratic and exciting albums to come out. And certainly what it was that when it came out in April of 2013, but the scope and how impressive what it does is has really only multiplied and been amplified with time as very little has come out since this record that feels as though it does much of anything that this album is doing let alone builds on what it's doing it's this kind of imposing and demanding and very exciting culmination of a career of innovation for these artists that were particularly i guess reclusive but also outspoken when they did step out into the limelight with a new piece of work or with anything that they did really and of course i'm talking about the swedish group the knife uh, and specifically their fourth studio album 2013's shaking the habitual by the time that this album came out the knife were probably most well known for their streak in the mid 2000s of synth pop i guess i would say i mean the first big song they had was 2003's heartbeats from deep cuts which is this kind of very early to mid 2000s sounding uh slightly psychedelic pop song that has this really ingratiating but also endearing hook that would kind of burrow its way into my head as a child and would kind of become fodder for a lot of the indie artists that would come up in the wake of the knife and even well beyond it as well i think the most famous version of heartbeats is a uh, an acoustic guitar cover by jose gonzalez uh, and so that was a the moment where the knife kind of stepped onto the the stage of prominence in the alternative music world. And then in 2006, they really turned heads with the sharp pivot into a sleeker and slicker variant of their synth pop with the uh, canonical instant classic Silent Shout, which was Pitchfork's album of the year in two, uh, 2006. And Again, in a very different, but I guess sort of spiritually similar way to the album that we're going to be talking about today, had very little clear precedent in terms of how it sounded. It felt as though it was simultaneously building on some of the long-held established traditions of synth pop by bands like Depeche Mode, but also kind of reinventing it at the same time and, and coming through with a sound that felt incredibly futuristic while at the same time feeling as though it was arriving at the perfect juncture you know it's a kind of slick take on synth pop that feels like a kind of electronic analog to, to what interpol did with rock music in 2002 mm. 
But anyway, so that was a sort of a big moment where the knife kind of reestablished and reasserted themselves as a project that had a lot more, I suppose, grit, dexterity, and dimensionality than what you might expect from you know the the band behind heartbeats you know and there were you know hints from the the album that heartbeats is on deep cuts there's hints of that record of you know their interests in being kind of slightly provocative and having this very kind of sharp scandinavian political satire edge but very little of it was came through in a in a very sort of compelling way i don't think until they had really honed their sound so yeah, for the longest time, the knife existed as the silent shout band, uh, in the in the public consciousness that this very, you know, these eerie kind of mysterious Scandinavian. I don't know how to describe them, like <laughs> like monster figures who had this kind of like slightly uh, subversive folk tale approach to uh, political commentary and social commentary, wearing uh, like the plague doctor masks and yeah, kind of built up an image. Uh, there's almost an archetype of electronic acts where you've got like a vocalist and a producer or a DJ there. I can think of several like um, purity ring or blue Hawaii. Like they became very big throughout the 2010s, almost leading into this era when shaking the habitual came out and the knife Mm -hmm. is different from all of those, but there is a certain dynamic that you get out of stuff like even even something like D Antwerd, I think kind of builds off of that like the reputations of these two figures in the band that almost becomes larger than the sound larger mm. than the music or an accompaniment to it mm. and I think they they really solidified themselves as the silent shout band with the film did you ever see the the visual experience of the yeah, live album absolutely and I think that really pumps up like the the visual the characters which is incredible because they're such a small band with almost no live music experience at all. They are able to, like, as far back as Silent Shout, they were able to kind of cultivate and create this mysterious and kind of larger than life image by you know, presenting themselves in these very sort of strange, unconventional ways, playing along on this eerie quality that came from the fact that they're both siblings, Karen and Olaf Dreyer. And, the this sense with which they were they kind of just emerged from the ether and and this was kind of compounded as well within um Karen's solo work as Fever Ray as well in 2009 you had the first Fever Ray album uh which very much felt like it was cut from a similar cloth uh, as Silent Shout uh, texturally aesthetically as well but really allowed Karen in, perspe- in particular to kind of sharpen their personality within this aesthetic and really kind of hone the craft of what they were doing and the thing about fever ray in relation to the knife as well is that you know there there's a nebulous distinction because olaf is often involved in um, fever ray's music anyway i mean they're essentially this kind of one organism that functions with kind of Karen as the the head and the kind of you know the face of it all and, and olaf is the kind of you know just this sort of symbiotic part of them that adds this additional dynamic i suppose to the the way that the music comes across and i mean jake and i talked about there's a brand new fever ray album that came out just a few weeks ago radical romantics jake and i reviewed that fairly recently as well that was a really good record that felt like again a slight modernization as well as of the themes of fever ray and the knife while sort of commenting on the sort of graceful i suppose shift into middle age that karen was experiencing as well and how that kind of shaped their worldview one really interesting part of the knife story and i I appreciate that we're 
you know, probably seven, eight minutes into this without getting to the album yet. But one really interesting wrinkle in the story as well that I want to shout out is the collaborative project Tomorrow in a Year that The Knife did with uh, Planning to Rock and Mount Sims, I think in 2010 or 2011. 2010, I think. Yeah, it was kind of this midpoint between uh, what would be the 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 period between silent shout and and shaking the habitual and this was i think the first big sign or first kind of major sign that the knife were kind of really interested in pushing beyond the very again slick and kind of finely tuned aesthetic that they had cultivated with silent shout uh the the project tomorrow in a year you know heavily inspired by the the diaries of charles darwin and all this kind of very esoteric historical stuff that i frankly am not nearly educated (laughs) enough to get into and we're not reviewing it anyway but sonically it really showed this preponderance for an interest and really taking things in a much more avant-garde direction exploring these lengthier more brooding soundscapes that revolved around these textures and these kind of tones that had this kind of inhuman but very kind of naturalistic but slightly slightly kind of warped quality uh the preponderance of you know what i suppose you would call tribal drums yeah. and percussive accompaniment as well like but acoustic also acoustic instrumentation meeting mm. the digital production mm. yeah and it created this very i i don't really know exactly how to describe it but it is this it is this sort of human while feeling very inhuman quality and so that was a divisive project. I think critics were kind of a little bit maybe confused by just sort of how far that went into some of the avant-garde directions that that project went in. Although I do think that the second disc in particular in that project with the really longer tracks is, you know, that's some of the best work that I think the knife have ever put out, particularly tracks like Coloring of Pigeons and Seeds. You can really see in those tracks specifically the genesis for what would become Shaking the Habitual. And we got our first taste of that in January of 2013 with the release of the first single, Full of Fire. Uh, and we had the second single, Tooth for an Eye, shortly afterwards as well. And between these two, I would say, I guess, uncompromising songs, you had this very bold indication that what the knife were coming, the knife's return was going to be something very different and much more progressive. And I mean that in, in multiple different senses with which the word is used than anything they did before. So Zach, as our guest, I want to hear from you at this point as well, what the context was for you in early 2013 in terms of where you were at as a music listener, as a knife fan, what your first encounter with the record was and what in general you made of this as it was happening. So I think this was a spring album. I think I mostly kind of, came into it and like became aware of it more closer into the summer i remember that was like a really really big summer because you had like queens of the stone age and kanye and deaf heaven and a bunch of other shit that like dropped between you know june july and it was just like a very big summer for me i think like 2011 through 2013 with 2013 almost being like the crest of it was where i was sort of the most plugged into Mew or even Pitchfork to a certain extent, just avenues of exploring new music, which was really exciting at that time. I think I was just in my early 20s. I had heard of The Knife before uh, through Silent Shout. And when Shaking the Habitual came out, I think I was aware of the first two singles, thought it was cool. When the album itself dropped, it was just sort of like long, intimidating, didn't really 
fully clicked, but it was it was neat. But it prompted me to go back through their catalog from the beginning through Silent Shout. Silent Shout's immediate. I mean, if you've heard it, it's as slick as Violator while sounding otherworldly, incorporating like a vocal delivery style that is quite alien and comparisons to Bjork, I think, are are there to be made between the kind of esoteric nature of illusions and how cryptic a lot of the lyrics are, but the way that it's mostly about evoking this mood and getting you kind of lost in the sound and the emotion of the music. And with Silent Shout, it's such a direct, enjoyable, danceable album that's kind of giving you all that as well. I think what Shaking the Habitual offers you is something where you get to really get lost in that almost nightmarish weave of personal lyricism meeting with these very textured, drawn-out soundscapes where you're kind of traveling along percussion. Because I think like Shaking the Habitual, it's like an hour and 40-minute long album. And the thing that I leave it thinking about every time is that percussion. Because whether you're on disc one or disc two, whether the percussion sounds very tribal and acoustic, as we've said, or it starts to sound like digital program drum machines, there is always a really strong sense of rhythm pulling you through this entire saga of an album. I think something that you come across right away, even when it's just, you know, let's talk about gender baby, and it's kind of almost slogan-like in its simplicity, there is a really confrontational relationship with gender and sexuality that exists across everything that the band has ever created. Hmm. I completely agree. And I think it comes to the fore here and it becomes this much more bold and unsubtle feature of the work very purposefully than it has even in previous works. I mean, there's an, uh, a quote from Karen, uh, where, from Karen and Olaf in the press release for the album where they're like, what, we, what we're doing with this record is political. And our goal was to make that impossible to misunderstand and so the 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 ideas and again a lot of the political ideas on here as well very radical very far left i mean very influenced by writers like foucault from the perspective of you know a lot of the social and cultural commentary and then judith butler from the gender and sexuality um, side of things as well i mean there are direct uh, some of the lyrics as well are directly taken from works of literature or even previous artistic works as well you got a fucking fugazi lyric and raging lung that we'll get to. So there's a lot that the that Karen and Olaf do in a very blunt, dramatic, and in-your-face way to kind of essentially get you to be confronting a lot of the ideas and you know that that and a lot of the ways in which you exist within particular systems within the world and and the those the way that those systems operate and the vitality and importance of confronting those systems and essentially shaking them up. I mean, that is the core idea of the record. The themes, the lyrics work completely in concert with the brash violence of the music. It is a record that is constantly wanting to put you in a mindset of an upset state of affairs, essentially, of of the fact that things are not the way that they should be and that you should be upset about that. You should be provoked by that. You should be animated by that. And so this is a record that is constantly animating the listener. I think that comes through very clearly with Tooth for an Eye and Full of Fire, like right at the start as well, that one-two punch, especially Tooth for an Eye when you've got these, you know, this 
these colorful and kind of almost pointillistic percussive patterns that are just, you know, basically exploding and coloring this canvas essentially. And this really acerbic, sharp vocal tone from Karin as well. That's so just in your face and landing on certain lines and emphasizing certain sounds that have this harshness to them as well. Alongside lyrics, you know, that, that refrain of too many babies sucking on my thumb, uh, et cetera, et cetera, as well, that has, it puts you in the state of mind of, of, you know, being in the presence of someone who is really disgusted as well and thinks that you should be disgusted as well. Right. That entire idea of bringing fuel to the fire, of taking something that is understood and throwing your passion behind it, which I think is something that kind of, is important to understand when you go through the lyrics. I was going to say, like, because there is a sort of simplicity and a bluntness to them, but I think it avoids being didactic or feeling like you're being lectured for a couple of different reasons. One of them just being that there is such an emotional rust and such an emotional rawness and vulnerability that comes from how personal the writing can be that it, you know, it avoids ever feeling like some sort of smarmy lecture because it's really coming from a place of passion. And then two, the music itself is so expressive and so challenging at times that having these sort of blunt emotional truths helps you to navigate that, helps mm -hmm. you to explore the complexities that are more in the texture, in the structure, and in the music than necessarily in the words. Although the words, like the poetry of this album, the vocal deliveries are as great as they've ever been, while the music is also sounding as full as it's ever been. For a two-member band, like this opening track is incredibly lush. It sounds like they've got the full live assembly of Stop Making Sense with the just array of instrumentation that you can hear in the song. And it's kind of, I mean, it just, it almost breaks my brain a little bit trying to imagine how you conjure this full of a sound with mm. so few pieces it's very expressionistic and it's very colorful as well like i don't have synesthesia but records like this and tracks like this are the closest that music really gets to fully evoking these pure sensory and non-audio sensations within me i mean like the particular way that the percussion interacts with the woodwinds on this track and the way that again as i mentioned that karen's voice kind of scrapes against all of it you know very deliberately clashing with a lot of what's going on i mean it is a song that simultaneously is like you know, it's a lot of very sort of staccato instruments played in this very sort of disruptive way where all the sounds kind of just seem to fall into place, but at the same time also feel as though they're clashing. Uh, it, the effect is kind of mesmerizing, frankly, and, and it continues right into Full of Fire as well. By comparison to a lot of what follows on the record, both this and Full of Fire are very bright tonally, I think. Like the, the first track in particular, there's just sort of a effervescent quality to everything i think where we go from tooth to full of fire is kind of like it's bliss and then it kind of curdles into this mania almost mm. like there's a delirium and a and a manic energy that really takes hold in track two yeah. so that you still it's bright and passionate but it just immediately tilts into something that's a little bit more foreboding mm. and foreshadows like where the album will you know take you 
Yeah. I think that's exactly why a tooth for an eye is the perfect opener as well, because it is, the, you know, in a strange way, the friendliest thing on the entire record. Like it has this, you know, that sense of, I think effervescence is a great word, that sense of effervescent, colorful charisma and a sense of, I mean, it has that like iconic line, which is taken from a Gene Winterson book. I'm telling you stories, trust me, which is like a great hook into the record, right? Like Karen is going to essentially take you on this journey and it's going to involve you in these different states of mind of different people, of different ways of existing at certain points of different forms of matter right the, the whole record is going to take you on this journey through experience that fundamentally reflects the state of the world as karen and olaf see it and they're and they're imploring you to trust them in this kind of you know very eerie way in which you're inclined maybe not to do that and that could be just because of how sinister it all is and i like that i like that idea that Karen and olaf are kind of inviting you and kind of giving you this journey or, or enticing you into this you know you know, for lack of a better word, I guess, like, listen in sociocultural politics as they see them, but also at the same time, again, kind of underlining subtly that you shouldn't necessarily believe everything they say or buy into everything they say, because the whole point is not, you know, blind belief. The whole point is constant questioning, sort of constant right. uh, being prepared to essentially take what you're what you're given and turn it upside down. And you've got this imagery talking about bricks and like dance as a weapon it's this notion that like what you do in the creative sphere is violent shaking things up is violent so understand where you apply that violence and throw yourself into it like know what you're doing and commit to it hmm. but the, the other thing that i want to say is these first two tracks do a great job of like embodying that album art that album art is just like bright pink, bright teal in your face. Mm. And there's something that I think just kind of like sets the tone between that image and these two tracks of just how you're interpreting the kind of chaos mm. that they're creating. It, it is like, you know, it's this bold aesthetic garishness that reflects, you know, on the one hand, sort of in terms of commentary, reflects the kind of garish indulgence of, you know, a consumerist capitalist society that Karen and, and Olaf are very critical of. And again, it kind of reflects that in a way that's very blunt and unsubtle, you know, with, with the guy with, with the money fold just laughing in the top corner, um, but also at the same time as well, you know, that uh, that primes you for how garish and unsubtle and just volatile the album is going to be and that's so much of a core of what makes it work but again you know like as we were saying just to get back into fl the flow of the track list like yeah tooth for an eye and kind of introducing you welcoming you in while at the same time kind of subtly laying the groundwork that you know the ultimate lesson of this is to not trust in general and and to think for yourself uh, and then, you know, Full of Fire welcomes you in with that. Sometimes I get problems that are hard to solve, you know, really eerie, really kind of like creepy vocal intonation. That's like, okay, now we're going to get into, you, you've kind of been welcomed into and given a primer essentially for the overall effect we want this album to have on you. And now we're going to actually immerse you in some of the states of the world or of the, of being essentially as we see them, that, that provoke us that make us want to shake things up that make us angry that make us animated that make us emotional and so full of fire reflects that musically with this just one of the hardest beats of all yeah. time i mean listen the fucking, like the hooks too this is 
like the graduate thesis level of the knife to me where it's just it's abrasive it's extreme in many ways it's repetitive it's in your face like it's doing all these things that could put you off but in a way that just comes across totally masterful you just want to move it just gets right inside of your spine and makes you want to fucking wiggle around and then i think like lyrically we start getting into this like they're using repetition to talk about like what's the story that's my opinion telling another false story it's it's provocative it's really getting to a point where it's trying to poke you in the head and be like what do you what do you think what do you think what do you think trying to shake you up mm. <laughs> we've said it a couple it, times it, it's kind of trying to put you into this mind state where there's like no objective perspective and kind of basically constantly undermining i guess the idea of truth i suppose because the whole thing to me is about perspective as this fully subjective experience and the fundamental importance of understanding that in order to be able to be capable of empathy in order to be capable of understanding in order to be capable of appreciating the reality of the world which is that there is no single reality and you know there's very provoke there's very like um you know, there's very silly ways in which Karen goes about doing that. But, you know, the bizarre lyrical choices, the weird motifs that they choose, again, all of it is fundamentally there to wrong foot you, to kind of confuse you, to kind of, again, shake you up. It's the constant um, state of mind this album is putting you in of having no grounding, essentially, and of just being adrift, basically. But at the same time, you have this, incredibly just insistent and constant beat i mean just think about the way the song starts as well with the the different kind of bassy synthetic percussive hits and then each repetition they're just kind of they're, they're giving you more and more and more of them and they're building up the speed and they're doing this kind of slight very subtle panning thing as well where it's kind of like you know whooshing sort of in and out with each iteration and just adding things in one layer after another layer after layer after layer. In fact, layering from a, I guess, musical construction standpoint is a huge way in which they create an analog for the idea of perspectives and overlapping and contradicting and all that kind of thing that they're going on about in the record. And that there's always a lot of noise happening. And for most of this album, and sometimes there's harmony within the different layers and sometimes there's clashing within the layers. But basically there was a lot of different noise. There was a lot of different voices. There's a lot of different things happening to the point where it becomes nigh impossible to negotiate. And yeah, and you, you get lost within it. I mean, there's a reason why the songs on this record, I mean, so many of them are as long as they are as well is because it is this, you have to be immersed in the space to the point where you basically lose all sense of time and lose your grounding in a way that wouldn't work if the tracks were shorter, generally speaking. It certainly wouldn't work in the case of Full of Fire. You know, you go on a real odyssey with this song where it doesn't really change all that much, but it kind of decays and goes through these weird evolutions and, you know, these strange parts where you have these horrible scraping moaning dissonant strings at certain points in the second third of the song before kind of ultimately returning to something vaguely similar to where you began it is hypnotic is a really good way of describing it i think you've got like lyrics in the middle just kind of bringing it back to gender where it's talking about like vaginas and cocks that's like i believe it's a reference to the counter sexual manifesto 
like there's a lot of literary illusion that is in the midst of this in the middle of lyrics that might hit you in a way that are kind of crass or in your face but it's tying in a lot of academic literature right into the heart of what they're doing musically as the song kind of deteriorates and then pushes you into that third track which just fucking opens it all up breaks it all down spaces it all out after these first two tracks kind of open up in such a like specifically rhythmic way with like the drilling percussion you feel like you kind of run off the edge of the cliff and you're suddenly in outer space yeah this is like incredible sound design I mean, this was also 2013. I was listening to a lot of the Hexan Cloak excavation oh, came yeah. out that yeah, year. Sure. You know, I was listening to a lot of like, you know, uh, even in some of the metal that I was listening to, there was a lot of, there was more encroaching influence of things like drone and and stuff like that. So when this came out, like Tim Hecker's Virgins. Was yeah, that Virgins well. did come out that year as well. Yeah. So when this album first came out and I was aware of it around the time it came out, this was one of my, Cherry on Top was one of my favorite tracks on it, just because it's just so embodied me in this kind of haunting terrifying alien state i mean like again those just eerie terrifying like trilled bell sounds that sound like the some metallic kind of beast is just kind of like you know vocal cords basically and just these huge waves of noise like all of a sudden you're you're in this bizarre abyss of like with with these hanging stalactites and shit and it's just it's really immersive and terrifying and scary and so much of what makes it scary you know is what's happening aesthetically but also is the fact that you are dropped into it after you know like 16 17 minutes of of mayhem the combined transition i think really helps to pace out what is a long album right this is the first track where it's like, okay, now we're going to kind of settle you back down and get you into the rhythm of these songs, which are all, you know, running over four and five minutes. The, the next two after this are probably the most classic, knife, digestible songs on here. So I think the placement of this is pretty important to kind of get you into that patient, exploratory headspace where you want to discover what's coming next. And I think it makes the more accessible cuts that follow it a little bit more digestible. Mm. I also just think that it does such a great job structurally. It's about a nine minute song and somewhere around like four, four and a half minutes. You get these kind of sharp, almost, I don't know what the fuck they are. They're like strings that break through and everything just gets like even quieter. Like the soundscape kind of fades out and you just hear them ringing and reverbing. And you've got these vocals that come in that are fucking haunting and saying utterly cryptic stuff about butter popcorns and strawberry melons. And it's like, I don't have a very concrete analytical read on Cherry on Top, but I just think that the experience of it is so vital to the structure of disc one and the overall flow of the entire double album. I think it might be useful to talk about I mean, the, there's three distinct, lengthy, I guess you would call them drone or avant-garde pieces on this record that are very deliberately placed to break up a lot of the mayhem. 
And I think that structurally they serve that purpose, but I also think thematically the way I interpret them is, you know, the bulk of the pieces on this record, the, the soundscapes, you know, on songs like Full of Fire, on songs like Without You, My Life Would Be Boring, on songs like Raging Lung and Networking, those main big tracks, you know, the 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 massive, dense and very violent sound design there evokes, I, I think, that you know this very these very kind of human landscapes you know these very kind of busy city you know modern consumerist environments essentially where there's this constant noise of aggression essentially and and this just these destructive impulses and you know the way that Karen and Olaf view capitalist consumerist society essentially on the human level basically and then you have these you know these much more avant-garde tracks like cherry on top old dreams waiting to be realized and fracking fluid injection which i think are kind of like a counterpoint to that it's like below the surface of this humming buzzing chaos you know in the cities and in the human landscapes is this essentially rotting decaying natural earth this natural state of things below all of it that is you know being you know you know you know, in the in the case of fracking fluid injection, which is you know literally a, a sound piece that's about evoking you know the the sensation of the earth being fracked, but you know the more broadly these pieces, I guess, giving you this kind of insight into the the consequences of the you know the the self indulgent you know human centric way of being on the the natural resources in the world that that context exists within and and environmentalism is a huge theme of the record as well that is very clearly laid out in the press notes and stuff as well so i think you know while on a sonic level in terms of a listening experience these pieces cherry on top old dreams and fracking fluid injection serve a really valuable purpose in terms of giving you this i i guess breathing room feels misleading because it implies that there's anything kind of relaxing about them but give it, giving you this break from the onslaught of i guess more you know conventional violence but also giving you this you know this the sense of scale and place and size and context to all of the music and what it's evoking i have one other note regarding to cherry on top and its structure is that you have those strings that come they become more and more intense and they they almost get stretched out pulled out they deepen and they become more digital and something that i think happens on the other tracks that you're talking about old dreams and fluid fracking injection is that as they progress structurally the pieces of them almost like come off like they're disassembling or like watching a live band i talked about stop making sense they kind of put that band on stage together one member at a time you can almost see these songs like taking all the layers of them and stripping them off one by one by one until they become quiet, until they become silent. As if the message is, in order to make all these noise, you have to put all these components together. And so now you're kind of patiently waiting for them to be taken apart so that they can be reassembled again, mm. which I think speaks to the kind of material nature of music and then you know, if you wanted to relate that to the environmental themes, the idea of every material thing coming from the earth. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, 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 these moments are so well situated to give you this sense of like, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can enjoy the record passively, you know, if you have the taste for it, but you have these kind of rude awakening moments so regularly that kind of cut you out of it. Over the runtime, you almost certainly are going to have more passive listening minutes and more active listening minutes it's mm. just going to happen because mm. your focus kind of comes in and out but mm. it's always kind of drawn back in like 
so you go from the end of cherry on top into without you my life would be boring and it's just like immediate kettle drums immediate like this song is a rager like this goes so hard like there's a moment like about halfway through where like the the synthetic electronic drums come in like harder than before and i'm literally like it's like i'm seeing static for like three seconds it's that intense just exactly the reverse of the end of cherry on top where it comes in nice and soft and just builds 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 Mm. it's like the last moment of like conventional i guess (laughs) <laughs> it's weird to even call it like upbeat but there is the sense of upbeatness to it i think it's the last moment like that on the record like even the most danceable moments on the rest of the record you know songs like networking or whatever don't feel have a very kind of a real sense of just ugliness and decay and and, and inhuman evilness to them whereas you know tooth for an eye full of fire and without you my life would be boring are like the most alive the album gets i guess and and that sense um, and and it, it is, you know, it is reminiscent, you know, in certain moments of their previous music as well. But there's also just so much happening here and so much new context for the sounds that they use that make it feel like so different to anything that they've done before. You know, and we haven't even really talked about the way in which, uh, you know, one of the most distinctive attributes of the knife is the way in which the band, particularly Karen, who is the front person, uses vocal manipulation and uses uh, vocal effects, essentially. You know, Karen is non-binary, and this idea of subverting uh, gender has been something that's been at the core of of their music and the, the stuff the knife have done basically since its inception. You know, I mean, Heartbeats is on one level a song about, you know, upending basic gender roles in a relationship. And what they've done is really only ever gotten more complex and more i guess investigative of how gender is performed and and karen's relationship more assertive with aggressive and like confrontational yeah maybe a- absolutely and so that that is at the core i mean the way in which vocal effects are used is maybe one of my absolute favorite things about silent shout as well like especially the way that karen can make themselves sound like an absolute alien on track on that record and that creativity continues here i think as well i mean you have this you know but but it's like the vocal effects as well as the qualities of Karen's own natural voice are both being used in more extreme ways than they had been before you know like when you get those really shrill high-pitched qualities that are really accentuated by the vocal effects on a song like without you my life would be boring versus that kind of you know that eerie sort of evil low rumbling quality to the vocal tone on a song like wrap your arms around me which along with cherry on top was my other big favorite when i first encountered this record as a teenager i just found that the the soundscape here and the sense of just evil urgency despite the fact that it was this basically a dirge by the standards of a lot of the rest of the record to be so inviting and exciting and and captivating there's this hugeness to this quality and the sense, you know, in which you are basically being swallowed by something, something is wrapping its arms around you basically. And then you're, you're essentially from that point being subsumed into darkness for the next 20 minutes, you know, with, with the basically incomprehensible old dreams waiting to be realized, which functions as, you know, as I said, kind of like, an interlude or an intermission kind of almost because of the way that it's situated in the length of the album. I would describe it like the first two tracks come on so hard with so much energy for such a protracted period of time. 
they kind of collapse out into cherry on top, as we've discussed. And then it's almost like they try to work the energy back up through the next two songs. Without You, My Life Would Be Boring is pretty classic, nice, very propulsive, rhythmic. The next song, I think, is like their Portishead song. Like, it reminds me a lot of, like, Psych, I Cut You'd Hear on, like, third, maybe. Mm. But then it crashes out again into Old Dreams. So, like, that this one is energy falling out, energy falling out two different times repeatedly. I also just kind of want to shout out quickly, because I think, like, Without You, My Life Would Be Boring lyrically, it's, like, that's the song where they drop the name of the album. I think something that's kind of interesting lyrically and in terms of, like, the vocal deliveries like you're talking about is just the accent. The accented English and the deliveries and the distortion make lots of this stuff really fucking hard to glean what is even being said. It's being used sonically as an instrument, and it's also obscuring what the words are, which I think kind of plays interestingly with the bluntness of some of the messaging, right? Mm -hmm. Is that you kind of having to get in there and figure out what the blunt words say. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of vulgarity in that song as well. Lots of references it's to piss. It's a lot piss. of urine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's <laughs> like that Tiger line. Tiger P and Elf P. And there's that line. Yeah, this is territorial. This piss is territorial as well, which is you know, <laughs> on the one hand, you know, is probably a Nirvana reference, but also kind of, I guess, a more broad reference to the idea of what territorial pissing actually is. And, you know, that vulgarity. Kind of animalistic. Yeah. That vulgarity, again, is, is used really effectively here to kind of give you this very blunt picture essentially of the way in which human beings operate in basic social constructions, right? Is that they assert themselves and they carve out their own spaces in very ugly and demeaning and, and brutal ways. And there, there's, you know, a lot of what the, the commentary on, on humanity, I guess, on this record feels very much like it's, trying to bring people down to the level of of you know kind of uninhibited animalistic creatures essentially and that also kind of brings you closer to the earth and brings you closer to the planet and its natural state and allows you to appreciate you know the the cries and and shrieks of of suffering um that i think oh dreams and fracking fluid injection kind of represent i'll be honest when I listen to this record, I seldom listen to it in full just because all dreams is such a, it, it's, yeah, so, it's it takes beast. you out so much, uh, from, well, and it's, it's led into by Crake, right? Which like mm. I was saying, like the, the songs kind of feel like they break apart and then kind of space out into these interlude-ish drone cuts. But like, so you get this like really fucking aggressive soundscape that just kind of batters you. And it's like what 19 minutes long mm. yeah and it just I, kind of it flirts with complete silence at certain points as well it rises it falls it has this sense of unpredictability and complete randomness to its structure which makes it feel even more alienating you know and then it kind of has that final push at the end where it kind of just is just this rising humming dissonance that yeah. kind of crests and then just essentially falls into silence it's a very you know it's a compromising and it's a it's a difficult piece you know to fully take in as you know even though it's the quietest thing on the whole record it's it's got these vocals like it's like choral vocals like very layered and it sounds to me like uh 2001 
the space odyssey whenever mm. they're around like the model it's like whoa <laughs> yeah well that's a vocal <laughs> effect that they use a lot right is this like weird right. kind of squawky tone that is so disembodied and kind of fragmented from you like you can recognize it as a vocal tone but also at the same time you can't necessarily tell where the vocal ends and the effects begin and you know right. the context of how it's used it feels very like disembodied and kind of difficult to place i mean a lot about this album musically you know I, i'm sure it might be different if you have extensive knowledge of the equipment used and the instruments on this record but a lot of it does feel very you know hard to place and I think that's part of the effect as well. And nowhere is that, or in few places is that truer than my favorite song on the record, Raging Lung, which just brings you into the second it's, half yeah. of this record in, in stylish fashion, frankly, with that slow fade in, those kind of rumbling yeah. drums, that eventual presence of that kind of synthetic bass kind of laying the groundwork, that creepy vocal sort of, pattern that Karen's adopting here as well and that utterly you know I've heard this song a million times I have no idea what is making that noise <laughs> on the oh it's like these super abrupt horns that just cry out like so the synths on this song are like glistening they're yeah. as beautiful as this record gets in terms of aesthetic and then you've just got this like shrill horn crying over it that like doesn't take you out of the beauty of it like it just kind of complicates it it adds this great i i don't it, like the collection of the sort of sultry percussion and then the vocal delivery which like you said there's like a little bit of eeriness to it but a lot of sensuality to it at the same time mm. It would be seductive if Karen's voice wasn't so breathy at the same time as well. Like it just has this like sense of which it's trying to kind of, you know, whisper to you and appeal to you on a very, on a very yeah. direct, intimate level. But at the same time, yeah. you know, it is, it's freaking you out. Like it, it, it's some, it's not trustworthy, you know, and it's, you know, and Karen does this a lot across the record. Like it's like they're intoning to you to kind of listen to them at the same time as they're kind of pushing you away and and you know increasing the sense with which they kind of feel alien in relation to you despite the fact that you know with here are my troubles here are my troubles of mine can you take me for one last ride i want to be in my soul again you know they're they're appealing to be heard and essentially to be listened to while at the same time and then talking about how like poverty sells yeah. how like the hardships and everything it's almost like there's certain bright eyes tracks that are about that like putting your sadness on the stage and like trying to turn profit off of it trying to make your livelihood off of your own mm. emotional ecstatic truth well i think this song is kind of a, a more than anything is a music industry commentary frankly and it's something they've alluded to as well and the press notes for this record as well as they're increasing i guess disengagement from the music industry or from the way that you know the way the things you have to do essentially when you put records out I and mean, this is that's part of the reason why this is the last knife record why they release music so infrequently is that the whole process of having what you have to go through to do that and the system you have to engage with is so it makes them so jaded essentially um and this is a very kind of tongue-in-cheek poking fun at the commodification of suffering essentially which relates in a huge way to a lot of the rest of the record as well which is kind of about making you experience or making you kind of confront the reality of suffering the subjective reality of suffering in a way that isn't sensationalized and isn't dramatized and is just kind of really blunt frankly 
there's a lot of the lyricism that deals in uncertainty and perspective, as we've discussed, that feels like a commentary on the idea of doing what we're doing right now, trying to analyze this music, trying to write it about it, trying to dig into it and assert that we have this greater understanding of it when what you have to do is try to experience what it's expressing. So I think it's really attacking cynicism at every level of the music industry from how it's made to how it's released to how we listen to it and discuss it. Mm. You could draw an analog directly between a song like networking, what it sounds like, how it feels to experience and the kind of, I guess, what they might view as the inanity of what you and I are doing right now. I mean, when I listen to this song, to me, it sounds like inane conversation. Like it sounds like small talk. It sounds like a complete like parrot. Yeah, it's a complete pair. I mean, I guess the, the title is somewhat evocative of that as well, like the idea of of human interaction and its most kind of, you know, inhuman and stripped from hum humanity form, you know, the idea of human interaction as, you know, essentially this product, this part of a, a you know, a, a, a production exchange or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it's like on one level, this song evokes something I can a kind of dull two-dimensional interaction and treatment of human interaction that I despise. But at the same time, it's like really hard. Yeah. There's goes. a certain like compared to a lot of the percussion that is on the previous tracks. Like, so basically from right around the fourth track, whenever you hear that percussion come in, you're hearing some kind of kettle drum that's kind of sounding like it's being played with two hands. And then this is like one of the first tracks where it just, it is entirely digital percussion. It's entirely a drum machine. It doesn't even really sound as crisp and impactful as a drum machine does. It's splintering apart too quickly. And as the song goes along, it really sounds like it's just ripping those fucking pieces apart. And it's sort of putting itself back together on the fly. Mm. Also a song where those 2001 chants come back up by the end of it yeah yeah and they're sounding kind of even more sort of like fragmented and cut up and 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 just genuinely skin crawling in the way that they're used in fact this kind of skin crawling quality i mean, I mean there's a you know it's not a clear cut but there is a kind of dichotomy between um the first and second halves of the record in terms of the first half of the record really uh, certainly putting forward a lot of the most immediate and accessible material i suppose in a relative sense however you want to use those words with this right. but the second half of this album is so kind of relentlessly dour and and suspending yeah. you in these real you know just sort of still states of of inane constant you know, droning basically and in and, and various different forms. I mean, Stay Out Here is Man. What a what a banger. <laughs> it it's a banger, but at the same time it's like it's so just depressing. Like it's just my and note from last night is that this is what plays at the dance club in my nightmares. <laughs> it's like And the image that it conjured for me actually so Two times I kind of thought about Jordan Peele while I was listening to this last night. Cause it's like many different points of this sort of evoke that sunken place, right? From get out or whatever, where you're mm. fucking like suspended in the blackness, kind of under the skin shit. And then the other one was this second half of the album feels like, if you've seen the movie Us, like where the tethers go and what they would be listening to when their on earth counterparts go to the club. Yeah. You're in a fucking dance club seizing 
against your will listening to this shit. Yeah, it, it actually like there's just something about it that makes it feels really kind of uncomfortable as a as a listening experience to me i kind of get a little bit claustrophobic listening to this as well like i love it it's huge it's 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 an absolute it's a killer song but something about the length of it and just the the kind of again the sense with which it kind of just iterates into this droning repetition as it goes on really gets under my skin and that's compounded by the fact that you go you go right into fracking fluid injection as well which is you know I think is a, a kind of work of genius, frankly, in terms of how strongly and powerfully it evokes, you know, essentially what it is very bluntly about, which is, you know, the, the raping of the earth's resources, basically. And you're, you're essentially listening to these, you know, and you having, again, those weird vocal tones that are taken to the absolute brink of the uncanny valley quality, given this real sort of like crying clown feel while at the same time you're having this you know what sounds like just metal scraping across this kind of like you know these wooden strings essentially it's like it's what it sounds like is it sounds like someone filing teeth it's 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 horrible it has such a funeral dirge tone to it to me it is a lament it's a requiem Mm. there's the kind of buzzing that you know it's sort of vocals vocal layering vocal effects instruments who knows it's just this really sharp collection of sounds but it begins to kind of sound like like a reed instrument being blown and it's just got this extremely mournful emotion to it that is also foreboding like Mm. you're listening to something more that like once it's done mourning is going to kill you Mm. it's like very sad but also like threatening yeah, it's hard not to think of uh, Pendereki's Threnody for Hiroshima when I listen to it, both thematically and just in terms of the the effect of it. Even though, like, compositionally, it's very different. It's, you know, it's basically just one single musical idea that is very reliably repeated and the variations are in texture rather than in, you know, compositional ideas or whatever. But I don't know. I, it, it's very effective. And part of its its effect is how suspended and sustained it is as well. Like you're really put into that space for a lot longer than would be comfortable. And then even longer after you've, you know, had enough. And the, the point is that you get to the end of it and, you, and you're completely broken by it. Just the transition of how they use the voices. There's almost like an ironic dissonance to me on stay out here between how like, club ready those vocal sound where it's just like going over these hooks and you're just like yeah okay yeah 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 versus now like the human voice is like stretched and layered so much that it sounds like it's gone from something that's kind of recognizable but placed over a musical context that feels haunting to now Mm. just being like obliterated and taken to its own nightmarish region yeah i mean it is it's kind of like it, it is a uh, something that represents a kind of form of of, of oblivion and, and of death, essentially, of the earth that basically ultimately means the death of everything else that comes with it, right? And you're, you're kind of, the slate is cleared. It's so final and definitive of a, yeah. of a musical statement. And then you, you get ready to lose, which you described beautifully yesterday when we were talking about this as kind of just feeling like it's warming up for disc three. Like it's just- it does. Like, it it's... comes in like a fucking these new puritan song like it feels like i'm listening to war drums and i'm getting ready to fucking go throw a spear at a guy 
Like, yeah. It absolutely makes you feel like you just, after all this kind of darkness, there's a kind of optimistic end point that feels like a call to action, maybe. Mm. I'm not Absolutely. sure. Uh, that's how I read it, for sure. I mean, it's this idea of, I think the theme of this, the core theme of the song is kind of appreciating it, what it would feel like to lose everything, basically. Or maybe even, you know, not even just what it would feel like, but actually just, you know, allowing yourself to lose everything and then appreciate the freedom that comes with that to then, you know, yeah, because you it's this idea in which you where you can't the the conditions for revolution, whatever that means, the condition for massive upheaval, can't be met until the people are ready to essentially surrender everything that's tethering them away from that, basically. And so it's this idea of, you know, fracking fluid injection represents a kind of hard death of everything, basically. Then ready to lose is like this post-apocalyptic setting, basically, where the whole slate is cleared and you have an opportunity to carve right. something new and better in this new context. And so that's why I think it works as a kind of epilogue. The idea of losing here kind of echoes what I was talking about with the song structures where they, they take those layers and strip them out, strip them out, strip them out. It's the idea of breaking down these behaviors and thought patterns that are destructive, taking it down to something simpler, taking it down to blood, desire, and that animal urge, and then finding something that is honest and then chasing that with all of your intensity. Yeah, for sure. It's... You know, it's an exhausting album, but it does, it leaves you in a sense and in a state of like, you know, having been cleansed or having been, you know, put through the ringer essentially. And you feel alive by the end of it in a strange way. You you feel like, you know, you've gone through something, you've, you've gone, you've experienced a, a work of art that has really, you know, demanded a lot of you, but has also given you a lot back in return if you do sort of allow yourself to surrender to it. And you do, when you listen to something like this, and it's part of the core identity of what it is and what its point is, you have to sort of surrender your critical faculties and you just have to experience it and take it for what it is and let it kind of, you know, throw away, throw away your expectations, let it throw away what you're what you're used to expecting and what you view as conventionally good or appropriate or powerful in art and let all of that be shaken up, let all of that be upended completely. And if you can do that, and if you can let the I record think... put you through that, then you have a better appreciation, I think of, of art in general. I think it's an album that you have to surrender to. And that's a type of album that I'm very keen on that tend to be you know things that i can get very attached to and listen to a lot of times and feel like i understand very well like we came on here and discussed the artwork which is another like hour-long album you kind of gotta like trust it you gotta let go a little bit you gotta you know you can't show up with your arms crossed and expect them to uncross your arms but as far as albums go that can do that i think shaking the habitual with its first three tracks comes out with so much energy so much style so much creativity that it just wraps me right up into it. It's just an incredible experience. It's not quite as immediate as Silent Shout, but I think it's just as masterful and it's extremely rewarding. Songs like Networking and songs like Raging Blunt are really gratifying and they would be excellent songs if placed in the context of any other album, but coming as they do on disc two here, feels like you're just getting into the reward of it a little bit more directly. You're getting into the meaning of it a little bit more directly, even though 
the rewards and the meanings of this album are quite densely layered and can take a lot of work to get into. By going through it and surrendering yourself to it, you're going to find yourself right in the middle of something that's quite complex. And that will, if you want to do the legwork and get into the press releases that we've talked about, analyze the lyrics, which can be a little secondary or tertiary to your experience, you find that this album that is so creative and unique and singular also offers you a lot of different avenues of creative and academic expression to explore. And I think that's one of the great things that art can offer you is giving you a door into worlds like that. Through things that fucking go hard. <laughs> like through things that make you want to dance in your living room. Zach, thank you very much for joining yeah, me. Course. I think that brings us to a nice natural end to our discussion of Shaking the Habitual. Of course, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, check out the First Watch podcast if you haven't already. Zach and Cole talk about the latest and greatest in film, with often with our frequent special guests as right. well. So go and check that out. I'll make sure there's a link to that in the description below. We're nabbing Morgan on the next one so that we can talk about John Wick. We're doing that tomorrow. Fantastic. That might well be up by the time this video is posted anyway. So you might be able to go and check that out if you are interested. If you like this album, if you don't like this album, regardless of what you think of the album we discussed today, I want to hear from you in the comments below. Let us know what Shaking the Habitual does to you, what you think of the album, where you fall on it, how it fit, work, how it compels you compared to the Knife's previous work as well. I want to hear your thoughts in the comments below. If you enjoyed this discussion, please consider giving the video a like and subscribing. If you have not already, both those things help us out a tremendous amount. If you want to go above and beyond and support the channel directly for just $1 a month, you can hit the join button, become a member of the Jams and Tea family, get your name and the title call of every video on this channel plus if you want to recommend us some music to listen to and talk about your recommendation will go to the top of the pile until next time though folks rock over london rock on chicago mastercard there are some things money can't buy for everything else there's mastercard <laughs>